We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Zulu with Zulu with Have you ever seen the movie Zulu with Michael Caine? If you have, you've seen a story about how a handful of British soldiers stood up against a large army of Zulu warriors defending a place called Rourke's Drift. If you've ever heard of Breaker Morant or seen the movie of the same name, you've seen a movie about the Boer War, which was fought in South Africa in 1900. It's not a war that most people have heard of. It was the first war where a significant number of soldiers from the different states of Australia, Australia hadn't yet been federated, fought and died for their country. I can almost guarantee you that you've never heard of the incredible siege of the station at the Elands River in South Africa, defended by some of the soldiers from Australia fighting in the Boer War. Someone said that if A.B. Banjo-Patterson had been at Elands River, the name, one with the blood of the incredible resistance of the Australians to the enemy's overwhelming firepower, would be as familiar to you today as the name of Gallipoli. If you've ever heard of the Boy Scouts movement or the Girl Guides, then you may have heard of its founder, Baden-Powell. He was involved in this siege. So was Lord Kitchener, still remembered from the iconic First World War propaganda poster, pointing at you with the caption, Your country needs you. If you've ever heard of the author of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you might be interested to hear what he had to say about the Australian stand at Elands River between August 4 and 16. 1900. This action was dramatic, heroic, and drew in some of the greatest personalities from the beginning of the 20th century. What a movie this would make. Surrey Marie, a traditional song from the Boers of South Africa, a popular folk song at the time of what is called the Second Boer War, but it's known more commonly today, simply as the Boer War, fought in South Africa between October 1899 and May 1902. Australia wasn't yet a nation when this began. It was when it finished. The Australian states sent contingents of soldiers to fight for the empire against the Boers. By the end of this war, about 16,000 Australians had fought in South Africa. By the war's end, the soldiers from Australia were truly Australian because Federation happened on 1 January 1901, before the Boer War ended. Australia lost 282 dead, or later from wombs, suffered in combat, 
Another 286 died from disease, not unusual at this time when more soldiers usually died from disease than combat. Another 38 died from accidents or other causes. Six Australians won the Victoria Cross. In August 1900, it looked as if the Boer War was over. The Boers had been defeated in open battle. But the Boers were a tenacious people and they found a new way to fight a war against a military power that was stronger than they were in a traditional major war. The war moved into guerrilla war that would become familiar in the later part of the 20th century in countries such as Vietnam. The British had just relieved their forces that were besieged in the city of Mafeking. The Boers' conventional forces seemed to have been defeated. Many Boers were surrendering, giving up their arms. But it wouldn't be long before they again took up their arms when they saw how effective the guerrilla war was that had been started. Perhaps they could still win this fight. By the end of June 1900, the British had established a string of garrisons linking the towns of Mafeking and Rustenburg. One of the posts along the way was a garrison at Elands River. By August 1900, the Elands River garrison was set up with a telegraph station, a stone ammunition store, military supplies, 100 wagons. There were also more than 1,500 horses, mules and cattle there, marked for evacuation or slaughter. There were also 30 South African British loyalists waiting for a military escort to take them back to safety. The stores at Elands River would have been very useful to the Boers. They were enough to supply a force of 3,000 men for a month. In 1900 money, they were worth £100,000. They represented a tempting and easy target from all appearances. On 3 August, Colonel Hoare was in command of the Elands River garrison. He was suffering from malaria, for which there was no satisfactory treatment. His illness plagued him during the fighting that would start the next day. On 20 July, Major Walter Tunbridge arrived at the Elands River garrison at the head of 120 men of the Queensland Mounted Infantry. It was fortunate the Queenslanders had with them Surgeon Captain Albert Ducker and his medical team. One unit, mostly of soldiers from Australia, had been roughly handled by a Boer force while trying to clear a road from Elands River to the next post at Magato. One of the British commanding officers in the area was General Robert Baden-Powell. He was the man who would, in 1907, begin a journey that led to the creation of the worldwide scouting movement. Baden-Powell, aware of the trouble that had happened not far from the Elands River garrison, sent a warning to the garrison on 25 July to Colonel Hoare that he could expect an imminent attack from the Boers. Perhaps it was because of Colonel Hoare's poor health that measures to prepare the Elands River garrison to withstand an attack were inadequate. The men didn't dig in. But it wasn't fair to lay all of the blame for this at Colonel Hoare's feet. 
there was an attitude among the inexperienced soldiers from Australia that digging in was an unmanly thing to do. As at 3 August, the garrison was made up of mostly Australians. There were 105 men from New South Wales with the New South Wales citizens Bushmen, 141 Queenslanders, the majority of the troops at the garrison, with the 3rd Queensland Mounted Infantry, 42 Victorians from the 3rd Victorian Imperial Bushmen, 9 Western Australians from the 3rd Western Australian Imperial Bushmen, and 2 Tasmanians with the 2nd Tasmanian Imperial Bushmen. Besides the Australians, there were 201 men from Rhodesia, 3 Canadians and 3 British. The medical officer, Captain Albert Ducker, was there, as I've already mentioned. He had three ambulance wagons with him that had been funded by the women of Queensland from public subscription. There were also 50 native Africans filling roles as labourers, drivers, servants and runners. The soldiers at Elands River were a bit of a ragtag bunch Some of the men had been acting as security detachments, protecting supply columns. Some were stragglers who were looking to rejoin their units. For the moment, they were all at the Eland River Post waiting for Carrington's relief column that Lord Roberts had sent to escort them back to a more secure British base. The main duty of the men making up the garrison was to ensure that the supplies there didn't fall into the hands of the Boers. Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Carrington had been ordered to Elands River Post to escort the garrison back to safety. He'd left Mafeking on 1 August with 1,023 men of all ranks under his command, mainly Australian Imperial Bushmen and quite a lot of Rhodesians. A third of his force was left by him at Wunderfontein to protect his transports. Although the garrison had been given a warning of an imminent attack, Colonel Horde didn't seem to have taken it too seriously. A patrol was sent out from the garrison on 3 August to look for any Boer forces in the area, but they didn't find any Boers beyond a few scattered ones, and they didn't appear to pose any threat to the garrison. The garrison was so relaxed that night that a concert was held for the men. For the Boers, this garrison offered a tempting and apparently easy target, especially because of the powerful artillery that they had with them. Where the garrison was located was described as being like it was in a large stadium. There was high ground on three sides of it. In the centre was an open area about 3.2 to 4.8 kilometres wide. By positioning their guns on the high ground, the Boers got a valuable range advantage, extending the usual range of their guns to between 1,820 metres to 3,600 metres. While the Boers enjoyed these considerable advantages for their artillery, As guerrilla forces, their commanders assessed that any attempt to assault this position would likely result in heavy losses, and therefore would be avoided. The total force holding the garrison was 505 officers and men, of which 301 were Australians. 
The garrison had one old muzzle-loading seven-pounder gun, and really that piece had to have been stolen from a museum. Its propellant was still black powder, the same type that had been used in warfare since the late 1600s. It also had three rapid-fire pom-pom guns, which were universally regarded as being inadequate and unsuitable for modern combat. One 303 Maxim machine gun and an older .45 inch calibre Maxim gun. Against the 505 men of the garrison, their single antiquated cannon and other bits and pieces that only continued to work throughout the battle by being given constant attention, including being stripped down more than once, the Boers had assembled between two to 3,000 men. Their commander was the legendary General Cus de la Rey, who the song after this ad break will be about. The Boers had quite an arsenal, one 15-pounder gun, four 12-pounder guns, one 7-pounder, which enjoyed the advantage of high ground, giving it a range advantage over the garrison's 7-pounder, which had to shoot uphill, and three pom-poms. The Boers also had a generous supply of ammunition, unusual for guerrillas. The Boers surrounded the Eland River garrison on the evening of 3rd August, getting into position to unleash their attack the next morning. Everything was ready and in position to begin the bombardment of the garrison at daylight. By the standards of that war, it was to be a very severe and heavy attack. Would the soldiers of the Queen be able to withstand it? At dawn on 4 August, the garrison had been dismissed from their pre-dawn alert. There appeared to be no activity from the Boers. The men were heading to the mess tents for breakfast when some rifles were fired. They were fired by the Boers, but this wasn't immediately apparent. The African servant of the Methodist padre of the garrison, James Green, yelled out, Boss! Boss! The Dutchman! James Green didn't think so and said, Nonsense! He thought it was the butchers slaughtering some of the cattle. But the fire was in fact coming from boars who had crawled down the riverbed towards the outpost and had opened fire. After fire had been opened by the snipers, the boar guns joined in the fire on the garrison. An attempt was made by the garrison to send a distress signal by the telegraph, but the second Boer shot tore down the telegraph line, ending that attempt. Trooper Henry Tully said, Shelling started in the grey light of morning. It was a perfect hail of bullet, and from the southeast and the west they came in simultaneously. We were and are completely surrounded. The big guns are completely out of range. We have only a seven-pounder, which is completely useless. 1,700 artillery rounds were fired at the garrison that day. For that period and for that war, that was a fierce bombardment. The garrison had meagre protection against this storm of fire. The day before the attack, they had thrown up what are called Shanzas, a bore word meaning a piling up of stones, in this case in a crescent shape with barbed wire uncoiled in front of it. 
In the first minutes of the barrage being opened on that first day, the garrison was a shambles. There were smashed wagons, buildings and bloody chunks of animal flesh and animal carcasses everywhere. Five men were killed, 27 were wounded. Hundreds of shells fell in the middle of the milling cattle, horses and mules. One shell would take out as many as 30 animals. It didn't take long in the scorching heat before the bodies of these animals bloated and burst. The garrison spent the whole siege, apart from the first day, having to live with the stomach-churning smell from these thousands of dead, rotting animals. The garrison hospital flew the Red Cross flag over it, and three times that flag was shot away during the bombardments and had to be replaced. From this first day, a pattern began to emerge with the Boers. They'd begin firing at the garrison at 6am and they'd cease fire at dusk. But just before nightfall, the Boer gunners would sight their guns into the centre of the camp. They knew that after dark, the men would leave their protection and move about feeling safe. And then, around about 10pm at night, the artillery would lob a few shells into the camp to catch any men in the open by surprise. There was important work for the defenders to do at night, though. There was no supply of water to the garrison inside the garrison perimeter. Every night, water parties were sent out with the vital mission of getting water and bringing it back. The Australians, who had scorned digging trenches before the bombardment began, now had a change of heart. But the ground was solid and not easily broken. Digging trenches wasn't easy. The men used their bayonets, but they weren't really effective as a digging tool. Real digging tools were scarce. The entrepreneurial amongst the people in the garrison charged a man three pounds a half hour for the use of a pick. That was an outrageous sum. The men were willing to pay it. But this had only been the first day. The men wondered where Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Carrington was with the relief column. So where was he? The garrison's only artillery piece was the almost completely useless seven-pounder that Trooper Henry Tully had spoken of on that first day. Major Tunbridge, the Australian second-in-command, and for most of the siege, effectively the commander, because of Colonel Hawes' malaria, worked tirelessly under fire to try and keep the thing working. Tunbridge had to completely dismantle it four times. He spent a day and a night with a file, repairing some of the shells which had been damaged while they were being transported. The little seven-pounder had one success, though. Who knows, maybe it had others, but... This one is on the record. It scored a direct hit on a farmhouse where some Boer snipers were keeping up harassing fire on the garrison. That ended their use of that place. But I asked the question, where was Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Carrington's relief column coming from the west? With the 600 troops and artillery he had with him, he got to within 800 metres of the garrison on the afternoon of 5 August. Of course, the spirits of the besieged men in the garrison surged at their imminent relief. Carrington's force then came under fire from the Boers. 
that moved some of their artillery and a hundred of their riflemen to block his advance. Carrington's soldiers were Rhodesians, who'd never been in battle before. Carrington had never fought the Boers before. He decided that his small force couldn't hope to break through to the garrison. He withdrew, which is one word for it. The garrison saw how Carrington's troops were withdrawing. They thought that it looked more like a panic flight. How crushing that must have been for the garrison. In fact, Carrington formed the opinion that the garrison could not possibly have survived an attack from this overwhelming force. He somehow concluded that they must have either surrendered or been overwhelmed, and he so reported to his superiors. There was another relief column coming from the east, and that was led by the future founder of the Boy Scouts, General Robert Baden-Powell. Baden-Powell commanded a much stronger force than Carrington had. He had 2,000 mounted infantry under his command. On 5 August, he heard the gunfire and artillery coming from the Boers in the firefight against the garrison and especially against Carrington's relief force. Now Baden-Powell made the assumption that Carrington had successfully broken through to the garrison. No one had reported that to him. I don't know how he could possibly have reached that conclusion. So he decided to withdraw. The garrison stayed under siege, and Lord Roberts, based on reports that the garrison must have been overwhelmed, or inevitably would be, wrote it off to its fate. The Australians never seemed to just sit back and let the enemy take the initiative. They did during the siege. What the Australians have magnificently done to the extreme discomfort of their enemies ever since. They sent out forces at night to raid the Boers' positions. That had been their game until now. The raiding was kept up throughout the entire siege, nearly two weeks patrolling at night, killing silently. It was the stuff of legend. One Boer soldier wrote home, They were the only troops who could scout into our lines at night and killing our sentries while capturing and killing our scouts. Our men openly admitted that the Australians were more formidable opponents and far more dangerous than any British troops. On 8th August, the legendary Boer general Cus de la Rey sent a messenger under a white flag of truce to the garrison. He told Colonel Hoare that the relief forces that they were obviously counting on had withdrawn. This would have been the first that they'd heard of Baden-Powell's failure. Dillaray offered to escort the garrison to the nearest British post. The officers would be allowed to keep their weapons, a traditional honour given to the commanders of a besieged position in recognition of their skill and bravery. The story goes that the garrison commander, Colonel Charles Hoare, was given no choice in his reply to the Boers. Even if I wished to surrender, and I don't, I am commanding Australians who would cut my throat if I accepted your terms. I don't expect that your artillery will change the minds of these men. On 13 August, a native runner sent by Colonel Hoare, 
was picked up by British forces on the Mafeking Railway. The news that the garrison was still holding out shocked Lord Roberts, the British commander in South Africa. He was furious at Carrington and Roberts for their failures to have relieved the garrison and for telling him that the garrison had either surrendered or been overwhelmed. Lord Roberts immediately ordered General Lord Kitchener to take under command a relief force of 10,000 men to relieve the garrison. Kitchener marched out on 15 August. This force was overwhelming, and the Boers sensibly withdrew rather than fight a battle that would have cost them dearly and which they would have lost. The garrison was relieved the next day, 16 August. They'd been besieged for 12 days by a vastly superior force. It was a remarkable feat of arms. 80 men, one in five of the defenders, had been killed or wounded. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a war correspondent in the Boer War, and the future writer who created the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, wrote, When the ballad makers of Australia seek for a subject, let them turn to Elens River, for there was no finer fighting in the war. The Australians were assured by the British that they'd be given official recognition for their bravery at Elens River. Nothing happened. Many of them believed it would have been different if they'd been British. An unidentified Queensland officer said, And who were the moving spirits in the list of the glorious stories of British arms? A few score colonial youths, mostly Queenslanders, with no military training to speak of. You may not see much of this magnificent defence in the official reports, but let me say that very great jealousies of colonial troops are very noticeable here. Jan Smuts, one of the leaders of the Boer forces, later a Prime Minister of South Africa and then a close advisor to Winston Churchill during the war, said of the gallant defenders at Elands River, never in the course of this war did a besieged force endure worse suffering, but they stood their ground with magnificent courage, all honour to these heroes who in the hour of trial rose nobly to the occasion. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone program. The next program is even more dangerous. 